1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schulte, from the University of British Columbia. The cybernetics community owes a great debt of thanks to the editors of Rutledge Library Edition's Philosophy of Mind series for bringing to light a neglected classic of the field in 2015. It was then that their reprint of Kenneth Sayers' Cybernetics and the Philosophy of Mind appeared. Originally published in 1976, Sayre's book proffers cybernetics as nothing less than a solution to the mind-body problem through a kind of informational monism reminiscent of the thought of Gregory Bateson. As such, it provides as fulsomely developed a cybernetic theory as one is likely to find anywhere, one that most certainly deserves a place in the canon of the field's most substantial works. In my in-depth conversation with Dr. Sayre, now Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Notre Dame University, we explore the relationship between the two entropies of information theory and thermodynamics, parse the notion of feedback into even more fine-grained categories of homeostatic, heterotelic, sentient, and anticipatory, and trace the role of these various types of feedback in processes of evolutionary adaptation behavioral conditioning and consciousness as well as the development of social structures language and reasoning leading to the maximization of negantropic flexibility the result is a deeply thought-provoking glimpse of a rigorously argued cybernetic framework deserving of considerable attention within and beyond the field and so without any further ado let's turn to my conversation with kenneth sayer Dr. Kenneth Sayer, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us on uh, New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. It's a great uh, honor to have you with us.
0: It's my privilege. I appreciate it very much.
1: So, first of all, congratulations on the reissue of the book. This book initially came out in 1975, correct? Uh,
0: 76. 70, right?
1: 76, yeah. Well, it's obviously a well-deserved uh, reprint, and I'm certainly very, very grateful for it, because I, I don't know if I would have discovered it, and it's certainly enriched my uh, ongoing Study of the field, so um, congratulations, and I'm I'm very grateful that your your book has been uh, made available to us again, deservedly so, and that you're here with us. So thank you. Uh, yeah. So as is traditional for uh, all the channels on the New Books Network, we just start with a general question. Can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and your intellectual journey to an engagement with cybernetics?
0: Mm, right. I have a uh, <clears throat> bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1952. Uh, I have a PhD in philosophy in 1958. While I was working on my PhD thesis, I had a full-time job with MIT's Lincoln Laboratory, which was then engaged in defense contracts. We were working on what was known as the SAGE system, S-A-G-E, Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, uh, which was basically a system in which human tasks were taken over uh, when feasible by computer, uh, by, by, by machines, as it were. Uh, an early version of artificial intelligence before that name became uh, part of the public domain. Um, At Lincoln Laboratory, while working with SAGE, there were a number of people that were very influential in my uh, uh, subsequent development. Uh, Two well-known people at Lincoln Laboratory at the time, were Oliver Selfridge, uh, Marvin Minsky, whom I uh, got to know. a person that some uh, listeners and, and you perhaps may have heard of but may not uh, was uh, Fred Fredkin, Alfred Fredkin, uh, who was one of the three scientists covered in uh, a book by Robert Wright uh, named Three Scientists and Their Gods. Hmm. The other two were E.O. Uh, Wilson and uh Uh, Shoemaker. Mm.
2: Uh,
0: Franken and I were office mates. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, Got to know him very well, and we fed each other's interests. Among those interests, incidentally, was uh, playing go. That's where I learned to play go. And uh, uh, Well, (laughs) go is another topic, but you, you may be... Uh, familiar with the recent development in the last few years of what was called what, Deep Blue or something? That's right, yes. The computer that beat the best of the world's goal players. Yes. Um, And at one point, we had a shot at that too, but we didn't get it very far at it. When I left, when I got my PhD, left MIT, I came to Notre Dame. Uh, Salaries were not particularly good then, uh, I needed uh, additional support. I founded a research program funded by the National Science Foundation uh focused on particular issues in uh in artificial intelligence uh in machine learning. we were working at, at great length uh on the mechanical recognition of handwriting, handwritten patterns. Uh, had a group of, oh, maybe a dozen people working on this, uh, including uh, engineers and uh, information theorists and the like. Uh, One of the uh, primary members of the group was uh, an information theorist named James Massey, uh, who has gone on to make a name for himself worldwide as a uh, information theorist uh, and uh under his influence i became increasingly interested and involved in uh information theory technical information theory i should say in passing that uh at the end of that 10 year project in mechanical hand recognition uh, handwriting recognition um We we achieved a system that at the time was state-of-the-art. We were actually working on the computer, developing these uh, programs, and the results of that project uh, are published in a journal called Pattern Recognition uh, in the 1973 uh, edition of that. Uh, In the course of that study, uh, something a problem developed which i explained at length in the final report uh, and that problem has come to be known as sarah's paradox uh, and if you look up sarah's paradox in the internet you'll find dozens of hits uh the paradox generally is that uh you have to be able to segment a series of letters before you can recognize them individually Whereas on the other hand, it appears you have to be able to recognize them individually before you can segment them. So Sarah's Paradox is still part uh, uh, of the uh, contemporary effort in pattern recognition. Mm. Um, The the next
2: phase
0: uh, came with... uh, during this 10 years period when we were working with uh, actual programs uh, part of the group at rate, was working uh, on the computer uh i became i took time to explore other approaches to artificial intelligence uh and became increasingly interested in the potential of uh, information theory uh in that regard uh, antecedents, people who very much influenced me before uh this development were obviously people like claude shannon uh the the uh, communication theorist innovator uh people like Nyquist and Hartley that uh he built on uh and a man named uh, leon brugna uh who had a thesis that he developed in a very interesting book um, that, on the basis of thermodynamics, information theory can be developed. I don't do much with that, but the point of mentioning it is that uh, early on, people were beginning to recognize the interaction between thermodynamics and information theory, which is uh, fundamental to, uh, uh, to to cybernetics.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the culmination of this process uh, is the book that we have at hand here, Cybernetics and Philosophy of Mind. Uh, and there is a more recent article, lengthy article on cybernetics uh, that's published in the uh, Rutledge Keegan Paul, Volume 10, Volume 9, uh, entitled History of Philosophy Volume, entitled The uh, logic, mathematics, and philosophy of science in the uh, 20th century. So that pretty much brings us up to date. I should mention finally that uh, in the process of getting oriented in cybernetics uh, as a separate discipline, uh, I was influenced by obvious people like, uh, like Ashby uh, and, and, of course, Norbert Wiener uh, and uh, Jonathan Neumann. So that is how I got to to my uh, presidential interest in cybernetics.
1: Excellent, thank you very much. Um, yeah, wow, all the way uh, your connections to Sage—that's that's fascinating. I, I hadn't realized that before uh, before you told the story. Yeah. Um, so, so of course we start with with Norbert Wiener, as, as you've mentioned, and uh, of course the the title of his landmark book. Uh, identifies cybernetics as primarily concerned with control and communication. So for you, how are these two aspects related? And in your particular approach, is one more basic than the other?
0: Uh, very interesting question. And the answer to the question is yes, one is more basic. Let me explain. Control has to do with operational systems. What gets controlled are systems that are functioning, that are actually working. Uh, And these systems invariably have either a goal to be achieved or a state to be maintained. Uh, An example of the former achievement of a goal, many, many examples, but one that was very much in the uh, uh, discussion back then, uh was the uh, uh interception of incoming uh aircraft that was the purpose of the sage system to when these unfriendlies were coming in to scramble a bunch of fighters and get up there and intercept them uh the system the sage system was one that uh, had a goal uh, to be achieved uh and and the control was the <laughs> key word in uh the the process the description of the process that uh achieves that goal the example of the uh latter uh, even more familiar that is uh, of a state to be maintained is the uh control of room temperature by thermostats uh that is a control system the thermostat in the first combination is a uh, a control system and The purpose there isn't to achieve a goal, but to maintain a state that's been uh, predetermined as as desirable. Uh, The variables in this kind of system, the variables that need controlling, as it were, uh, are system states. The control is exercised over the system states to achieve a certain goal or to maintain a certain standard. Uh, and this is done by feedback operations. We'll get to feedback later on. Uh, on the other hand, communication theory. Um, more often now, or at least in my experience, referred to as information theory, uh, the of communication. It's still called that occasionally, but uh, it's information theory in a technical sense of information. Not in the sense of meaning, not in the sense of information, revolution or stuff like that, but uh, in in the sense of uh, a technical sense of information, which we can get into eventually here. Uh, In communication, uh, information uh, is a characteristic of an information channel consisting of an input and an output and certain statistical interactions between the input and the output. Uh, In this information system, input-output system, uh, there's no goal uh, and there are no protected states. Uh, it is not an operating system, information uh, information channel is not an operating system. Uh, it is a system for describing and uh, tuning up, getting insight into the interaction among variables in the physical system. So communic- if the communication uh, theory is not concerned with operating systems, mm-hmm. uh, as far as variables are concerned, no system state variables, but rather uh, statistical properties of the input and the output uh, ensembles. The input consists of a variety of possible message states. Uh, The output consists of a variety of possible output states at the other end of the channel so to speak. And information theory has to do with the interaction between those two ensembles uh, of states. Mm -hmm. Uh, Early design or early application uh, of information theory, in fact, the uh, main reason that it received funding to be developed uh, had to do with the efficient design of telephone systems. It was developed in uh, Bell Telephone Laboratory. Shannon was a Uh, works for Bell Telephone. Uh, And modern telephone systems have evolved as a result of insights gained through uh, communication theory. Mm -hmm.
3: Uh,
0: Interestingly enough,
2: information theory made possible space exploration. And it did so, I mean, the possibility uh, has two facets. On the one hand, the guidance of the
0: space probes, uh, for example, or uh, satellite launches, uh, the design is... uh, the communication system that makes possible uh, interaction between Earth and these systems in space uh, is a direct application of information theory. Without information theory, this could never happen to begin with. But there's another interesting facet, uh, another way in which uh, space exploration is dependent upon information theory, uh, and that is in the Control of the uh, factors that uh, have to be governed in order to uh, make the space uh, probe possible, make make it, uh to guide it, as it were. So here is one sort of early example of the dependency of control of certain sorts of systems, space probes. Uh, which depends on information theory. Mm -hmm. Conversely, there is no dependency on the part of information theory (laughs) upon control theory. Right. So that's one indication of how the the, uh, uh, information theory is more basic. Uh, Other respects in which I maintain it's more basic, communication or information theory is more basic. Uh, For one thing, uh, communication theory is mathematics uh control theory is engineering and mathematics is just more basic than engineering uh you can do uh you can't do engineering without mathematics you can do mathematics without engineering uh the uh, another respect in which uh, i maintain communication theory is uh, more basic is that Channels uh, of information channels, uh, series, configurations, cascades of information channels uh, can be set up uh, with the following results. Uh, Information channels in cascade are known as Markov sources. And what they consist in, what a Markov source amounts to is the output of one channel serving as the input of another channel, et cetera, et cetera, as long as the cascade is extended. Now, Markov sources are sets of variables, of of, 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 um, states, communication signals, states uh that serve both as output of one stage and input of the next stage and the sequence itself a set of stages uh a set of stages with a particular configuration is called a markov source now the point here is that markov sources can be designed in such a fashion as to exhibit feedback characteristics. An example of that is given in the book. I won't attempt to explain it without without diagrams and the like. Uh, you can. The point again is that you can design information cascades of information channels that exhibit feedback,
2: mm-hmm.
0: whereas there's no way that you can exhibit that you can uh put together a system of uh, control operations that uh it, it produce information
1: right and,
0: and there's a, you get right should, yeah. should we move on sure uh I'm going to make one more thing which will of course. give us a point to give us a chance to move on sure uh and the the, the fur, further point there is that Information theory contributes significantly to the mind-body problem, whereas control theory has nothing to do with the mind-body problem,
1: Hmm.
3: which is
0: another aspect in which it's more basic.
1: And here's where your book comes in, of course, uh, and what grabbed me about it right from the get-go was that in your your beginning chapter, you... uh, Your book is presented as a contribution to the mind-body problem, the ever bedeviling uh, problem of uh, philosophy and very many uh, related fields. So, can you tell us a little bit about the mind-body problem as you understand it, going into this book, or it may have shifted between those years and now? But, and in a brief description, what is the intended contribution to that uh, to the to the um, troubling uh, puzzling out of that problem of your book?
0: Yes. There are two aspects to the mind-body problem, as I see it. And different people have different views. There's no one thing called the mind-body problem. Uh, one is what I call proto-scientific. It's conceptual. Uh, the mind-body problem has to do with the basic stuff of which reality is constituted. Uh, and there are various views there about uh the relationship between mind, body, and the ultimate stuff. Uh, traditionally, there's dualism, according to which both mind and body are basic. Uh, they're not reducible each to the other. Um, with that approach, you have the problem of how they interact. If they're irreducible, how can they interact at all? Uh, there's another traditional approach called monism. Uh, <clears throat> as against dualism, as against mind-body dualism. Uh, Monism has uh, well, many different varieties, uh, but one is materialism, uh, according to which only matter exists, and mind somehow or another is a construct based on uh, on matter. Uh, The alternative to form of monism there, is uh, mentalism, uh, according to which the basic stuff is mental in character, and uh, <clears throat> material systems are uh, matter is a construct of uh, of, of mental entities. Uh, examples of the latter, uh, well-known in philosophy, are, uh, are Barclay and uh, uh, Melbranch. And there's a third kind of monism of which which under which mind fits, and that's neutral monism. According to neutral monism, there neither mind nor matter
2: uh, is basic. There is
0: another entity that is more basic, neutral as far as mind and matter is concerned, out of which matter can be Constructed, if it's arranged in one way, and mind constructed uh, under uh, other arrangements. Uh, and my uh, system uh, is a form of neutral monism. Uh, what is monistic? What is the basic stuff in my approach? Is information. Mm-hmm. Now the other side, the mind-body problem, is methodological.
2: Uh, It so happens,
0: if I read the uh, field right, that there are branches of physical science that don't interact with each other much. Uh, Examples would be physics itself uh, and uh, neurophysiology, both physical sciences but it doesn't help much in neurophysiology to know be a really expert in physics uh and vice versa they don't interact methodologically uh according to the approach that i have been uh, have attempted to develop uh all of sciences <laughs> physical and mental uh are interactive uh And the way to sort of illustrate what this means is to uh, think of the evolution of different kinds of systems. Um, At the very basic level, uh, there will be uh, physical systems, uh, such as uh, which, which seek equilibrium such as the temperature on the surface of the Earth, which had to reach a certain stability before uh, life could evolve. Uh, In the middle level of development, of complexity, I'm putting together a brief list here of systems ordered according to degree of complexity. Mm -hmm. In the middle level of complexity are life systems. Uh, Life itself, in a very basic level, uh, the evolution of species uh, and the evolution of ecosystems and ultimately of the biosphere itself. That's sort of in the middle level, all having to do with living systems. Uh, and then at the higher level, uh, again, as the book is organized, we have uh, individual uh, life, life forms, uh, species, uh, and uh, individuals within those groups of reproducing organisms uh, that are capable of learning and of what I call consciousness. Uh, And the point of this ordering of these systems with respect to increasing complexity is that at any stage, understanding systems on the lower level is a very helpful, if not necessary, uh, factor in understanding systems on the higher level.
1: Right. So, thank you very much for that. Um, It's interesting you mentioned information as the sort of, uh, at the core of your monism, and I'm reminded of the comments of a cybernetician I know who was a student of Heinz von Forster's around the time that your book came out, and and who said that... um, You know, he'd hoped the promise of cybernetics would be that uh, as physics was the science of of matter, that cybernetics would become the science of information and do the same things for information that physics does for matter. So it's interesting to hear something like that, I think, echoed in in what you're talking about. Right. Um, So a a fundamental concept of communication theory is, of course, entropy, And of course, entropy simultaneously is a a basic and major concept in the realm of thermodynamics. And at the center of of what your book is doing is uh, bringing these two um, conceptions of entropy together. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about your view on the relationship between these two entropies in communication theory and in thermodynamics?
0: Well, that's a very elusive topic. As you know, you'll find many different approaches with many different... Outcomes, Uh, and I will give you my my approach, uh, which I have confidence (laughs) still do. Uh, Start with thermodynamics, which is perhaps more familiar. Uh, Entropy in thermodynamics is degraded structure or expended energy, energy no longer useful, usable for doing work uh an example of degraded energy of course is is uh, uh low grade heat uh it's warm but it won't do any work for you now everything about entropy and the in uh, the laws of thermodynamics uh assumes is predicated on the notion of a closed system uh and and it's hard to find physical examples of systems that are entirely closed, but for the, for the conceptual purposes, uh, assume that we're dealing with a closed system. Now, the first law of thermodynamics says that the amount of energy in a closed system is invariable. Same amount of energy throughout, throughout time, throughout its uh, evolution or its development. The second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system entropy is continuously
2: increasing with time
0: which means that high grade structure is being used up high grade energy is being consumed and the end state projected which you know probably will never happen but the projected end state toward which this process is moving uh, is a uh, universe closed system in which heat is evenly distributed throughout and there's no structure, mm. and that that's the end of the that's the heat death of the universe, uh, so to speak. Now, <clears throat> back to entropy. It's unusual in the course of natural events, uh, to find
2: highly developed systems, improbable state.
0: It's unusual to find sources of heat or of energy in other forms that are capable of doing work. So the second law of thermodynamics says that these improbable states uh, of high structure and high energy, these improbable states gradually give way to more and more probable states, which is heat evenly evenly distributed and no particular structure. Uh, and there is a well. Let, let me save this for a moment and hop over to uh, uh, to to uh, the entropy of Information theory. In information theory, entropy is a measure of the degree of diversity at the input of the channel. Already one contrast comes up. In thermodynamics, entropy is something that can be measured. In in, 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 uh, uh, information theory, uh, entropy is not something that gets measured. Instead, it's something that serves as a measure. It measures diversity at the input of the channel. There is a formula, a well-known formula. It takes various forms um, for the entropy that characterizes, gives a mathematical definition of the entropy uh of a uh channel source. Uh and that well to, to, to put it very briefly, uh entropy according to this definition is proportional to the log of the inverse of the probabilities involved. Uh, it's entropy is proportional to the log of the inverse of uh, probability functions. Whereas in thermodynamics,
2: entropy there is
0: the inverse of the log of the probability of the relevant events. So you have information theory entropy, which is increases with the log of the negative probability and thermodynamics where entropy decreases <laughs> with that function, with that function. So they are in some sense opposite. How so? And that's the trick is explaining how so. How mm. in what respect are the opposite. And for this, and I'll try to I'll try to do this briefly,
1: uh But take your time though, because this is this is critical to the to the core of the book. So, so please take your time. It, it,
0: yeah. it is, it is, it is. Uh, the key to relating them. Comes with Boltzmann's notion of what he calls complexities. Complexities are structures,
2: are entities, are what are states on. The micro level complexities are not observable; they are states underlying observable phenomena.
0: What is observable are are micro state, are micro states what Boltzmann calls the the, the the micro macro not micro but macro level, and I have tried to put together some kind of a conceptual aid in understanding how that works. And I will try it out here. Uh, I've never tried it before, but I think it might help. Think of beans in a box.
2: Different number of beans in
0: a given box. Different boxes have different number of beans in them. These beans are... Uh, complexions, Boltzmann's complexions uh, on the micro level. And the relation between the beans in the box and the box itself is that an increase in number of beans in
2: the box increases the
0: likelihood of its respective box being observed as a macro state. Mm. So if you have a box with lots of beans in it, it's highly likely that its corresponding macro state is going to be uh, observable Mm. in in some relevant context. Uh, Whereas if you have less beans in the box, it's less likely to emerge as an observable macro state. Right. The most likely distribution across the board is to have the same number of beans in each box. That would correspond to the heat death of the universe, in which there is no structure that is available for doing the world's work, or correspondingly, uh, no energy available. Uh, We're doing the world's book work. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more unlikely the macro state, that is, the less beans it has in its box, the more unlikely it is, the further, the more improbable it is, and the more improbable it is. the more um, structure it exhibits for doing work. Okay, great. Now the two pieces.
2: Mm-hmm. Thermodynamics structure amounts to an improbably small number of beams in the box. And that is convertible into energy. Highly improbable arrangement of
0: the macro microstates here uh, corresponds to energy available for doing work and high structure that can be converted in, into the, such energy. And the progression according to the second law of thermodynamics is. For eventually all the boxes to have the same number of beans in them. Now, through the, now, now, information theory and entropy. There, it is a well-known theorem of information theory
2: that the more probable,
0: the more equi-probable, I should say. The more equal probable the events at the input of the system, the more information can be conveyed through
2: that system. So
0: the state at which entropy through dynamic entropy is greatest is a state in which all the boxes have the same number of beans in them. But, in that state the boxes the macro states are all equal probable, which means that when they are entered into the or when they are available at the input of the information channel, they convey the maximum information mm. so the system the <laughs> the relation of beans and boxes that gives maximum thermodynamic entropy uh gives minimum information theoretic entropy and that's why the signs are reversed
1: Mm. great thank you for that um so and we're going to be moving into neg entropy of course which is going to be critical and uh your descriptions of negentropic flexibility um, but as we uh, en route to those, let's talk a little bit about feedback because I think one of the many uh, fascinating contributions of the book is you parse the um, the notion of feedback into um, more categories than the usual distinction of positive negative, and you add uh, at least four other um, classifications of types of feedback that become very very important to this notion of negentropic flexibility, particularly as human beings are concerned. So can you, right. can you tell us a little bit about these several forms of feedback uh, that you've identified and, and how they bear on, uh, on the main thrust of the book?
0: Indeed. The basic forms of feedback are positive and negative. Everybody should eventually come to understand those. Uh, and, and examples of each are well-known. Uh, positive feedback. Uh, population increase. uh more people, the more people <laughs> are generated. Making people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another example is uh, potholes in the road. Uh, the bigger the pothole, the more it gets hit by the tires, and the bigger it gets. That's positive feedback. Whereas common examples of negative feedback are your thermostat and heat control system. Those are the standard examples. Now, those are all mechanical. Uh, In biological systems, you have the same distinction. Uh, Another example of uh, positive feedback in biological systems, uh, in addition to exploding populations, uh, is the... Phenomenon that is so distressing to, today for many people, which is the rich, richer you are, the richer you get. That's positive feedback. Yeah. Success and to the successful. system out of control. Yeah. Which is politically uh, notable. Uh, as far as negative goals, negative feedback in life systems, all living systems incorporate variables that have to be protected for the system to remain viable. Uh, Deviations from those protected variables have to be counteracted. Uh, Negative feedback, in broad, is the uh, countering of deviation. From those protected variables, uh, now, moving on from those that basic understanding of negative and positive, uh, there are the four kinds of feedback that you have referred to that I develop uh, in the book uh, and the, the first thing to say about these is that the feedback involved is not unknown at all people are. are perfectly aware of it, uh, quite commonplace. Uh, The only thing that's new is the names that I've I've given to them. Uh, So I've attempted to define these four different kinds of feedback in ways that will help understand what is happening in uh, given cases of feedback. First is homeostasis, which is a very common, uh, that term is not new, homeostasis. Um for life systems generally, thinking, f- for example, just of an individual organism, the system, the organism, remains viable only by absorbing negentropy, the absence of entropy from the environment, and discharging the resulting entropy back into the environment. And that transaction, the uh, the, the, the process of using that negentropy, uh, always is less than 100% efficient, which means that uh, more entropy comes out than negentropy goes in. And a system remains viable only insofar as it can uh, keep a balance between what's coming in and what's coming out, a balance that preserves the integrity of its protected variables. Uh, Homostasis, simply put, is countering variation on the part of the protected variables by adjustments internal to the system. An example,
2: control of body temperature.
0: When you get too hot, your sweat lens go into work and so forth. That's an internal adjustment. Uh, Another example is uh, maintaining the level of illumination on the retina, which is done by uh, changing the uh, aperture of the lens. Those are internal adjustments, homeostatic next step in complexity and uh, effectiveness which is built on homeostasis all of these are built on each other progressively the next step is what i call heterotelic hetero for other telic means aimed at having to do with adjustments in the in something outside the system or more specifically adjustments in the relation between the system itself and its environment. Uh, That's heterotelic. And the key variables are protected by making changes in the environment that uh, tend to make them vary beyond protected levels. Uh, Dramatic, in the sense of being quite uh, straightforward, uh, Illustration of that is the way a day lily will change its direction of its face to follow the sun.
3: Mm.
0: It maintains it, it maintains its relationship to the sun in such a way that maximum illumination uh, is, is taken in through the uh, the face of the, of the lily. Um, <clears throat> another example is simple enough is. Uh, when an organism touches a hot surface, there's a immediate withdrawal. You change the organism changes its relationship to the hot surface by reflexive re- withdrawal. That's herotelic. Next is sentient feedback, which amounts to advanced detection of threats in the environment to the protected. Variables, you see them coming, and you make adjustments to avoid them. Sensit, you 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 sense the sense what's happening out there, and take preventive uh, action. Um, and
1: just to, and this said, preventive action can be before the it's even impacted the protected variable. Is that true?
2: Uh, the evasive action, yeah, it avoids yeah. impact.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> um
2: uh, simple
0: example, when uh, when a, a, a gazelle spots a lion coming over the horizon or something, the, the gazelle will flee. Mm-hmm. That's uh, protection on the basis of sentient feedback.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then an- anticipatory feedback is a further sophistication of sentient feedback amounting to detecting circumstances in advance which are likely to produce threats before the threats appear and taking evasive action before the threat is actually present. Um,
2: An example
0: (laughs) is... A deer running away when it hears uh a noise in the woods uh, that sounds like that sounds like a, uh, a a lion might be present uh or more dramatically uh, for in terms of present examples, uh an example of uh, anticipatory feedback is when people see <clears throat> forest fire over the hill. And leave their homes mm. in advance. They say they protect their essential variables by leaving the scene before the threat develops.
1: Mm. Or if someone's walking okay. home at night and they see one street is is less well lit than another, yep. their avoidance of that street. So yeah, yes, yeah,
0: yes. And the the point overall is that in order of these different four different uh, kinds of feedback. The latter are more complex, involve greater commitment of uh, information processing uh, 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 availability in the nervous system than than the lower ones.
1: And then would subsequently provide a greater negentropic flexibility?
0: Exactly.
1: Okay, so that takes us to this very important concept. And as you mentioned, those those types of feedback that you've named that they're common sense in terms of our everyday explanation, but they haven't been identified as clearly within the theoretical language of cybernetics, and I think it is helpful to have them to to have those different types uh, named in that way um, and get more specific in in the in the ways we sort of slice up that category. Um, and so they provide greater negantropic flexibility, which is a, a key term uh, in, in the project of the book. So you can, can you please tell us a little bit about that?
0: It is a key concept. <clears throat> what
2: negantropic flexibility amounts to is the ability to take in high-grade structure, high-grade energy...
0: Over a variety of environmental circumstances, you've got no negentropic flexibility. If there's only one rigid set of circumstances in which you can take in the energy that you need and dispel the entropy that has to get rid of, you have to get rid of. If there's only one set of circumstances in which that happens, you've got no negentropic flexibility. (coughs) Excuse me, and very little likelihood of survival. Now, remember entropy, and think of neg-entropy as just the opposite. This term, incidentally, is due to uh, Leon Brouillard, whom I mentioned before, Uh, neg-entropy. Neg-entropy is the opposite of high-grade structure. Uh, Excuse me, neg-entropy is the opposite of degraded structure it's the opposite of used up heat in other words negentropy entropy is the structure existing at a level capable of being converted into usable energy or alternatively negentropy entropy is energy available for doing work so it's just the opposite of entropy Uh, and this is uh, this concept operates only in terms of dynamics. I, I could have mentioned earlier, and it's interesting, that there is no corresponding concept to the entropy of uh, information theory. There's no neg entropy in information theory. Mm. <clears throat> so, and as okay. we, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I can continue with the development here, but. Uh...
1: Well, so, so the, the neg entropic flexibility, obviously, and then on your account is. A, a sign of a, a more advanced state of evolution. Is that correct to say that increasing negatropic ex- flexibility? And so humans obviously have adapted uh, to have uh, a wide range of, of different types of circumstances in which we can successfully uh, get the energy we need, et cetera. Uh, and so that's directly then we, we tie in this idea of negatropic flexibility to the ideas of evolution and behavioral conditioning and learning yes. and consciousness itself. Um, so all these adaptive processes you, you remark on their, on their similarities in a way. Um, so can you comment a little bit on the way these adaptive processes are similar? As I mentioned, um, evolution, behavioral conditioning, consciousness, how these are all on a kind of continuum, um, for you in, in, in the account you give in the book.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, and, uh, Leading into that, let let me just summarize uh, aspects of this uh, negatropic flexibility concept. Sure. Uh, The more complex a system, a living system, the more negentropy is needed to maintain it in a viable condition. And the more entropy has to be discharged in order for it to become glutted, to avoid becoming glutted with with, with entropy. Uh, and the biosphere at large is an organization of systems that are ordered with degree to complexity. Uh, each level within the biosphere, the biosphere being the system of life on surface of the Earth overall, uh, which is built up out of many levels of less complex structure. Uh, and each level is uh, more complex than any of the levels
2: beneath it. So, stability
0: of, Uh, A living system that requires a certain amount of uh, energy and uh, entry disposal capacity depends upon the number of systems underneath it that can provide it with those resources. So we got a set of ordered set of systems. Uh, each level of which is more complex than the levels beneath it, and each level of which depends upon the support of the levels uh, beneath it. Uh, and just as a wrap-up of that, uh, another matter of very very much contemporary uh, concern today, uh, that the threat of the threat to continued existence of the human
2: species depends upon the
0: integrity of the, those systems in the biosphere underneath it. And we are destroying systems that provide negentropic flexibility uh, that's needed for uh, support of human life that's that's sort of the degradation of this relationship. Now, the question having to do with evolution and learning uh, has to do with the building up uh, of those structures. Evolution
2: is the development of reproductive groups or species uh, that can make homeostatic adjustments
0: to the living conditions under which, to which uh, they are subjected. Uh, And these homeostatic adjustments, could be exemplified in many, many different forms uh, it takes. Uh, But one is simply uh, changing in food sources, changing in type of food that the organism relies on, or or change in locales in which uh, these resources uh, are available. Um, Evolution of species is a matter of reproductive groups building up capacities of negentropic flexibility that give them uh, that maintain them, that that provide viability over a wide range uh, of environmental circumstances. Now that's evolution of reproductive groups having to do with uh, evolving more effective Uh, capacities of negatropic flexibility. Uh, Learning, in turn.
2: Learning has to do with um, adjustment of behavior patterns of the involved organism
0: that keep it in contact with this environment in a way that provides the needed resources of neg entropy. Uh, in some very famous, am uh, well, I, well, this, this would get to detail. Let me just uh, skip on a bit here. Um, learning
2: occurs with the adaptation
0: of connections between sensory organisms and a, sensory organs and effector organisms, connections that provide um, <clears throat> effective response to environmental threats or environmental contingencies. What's evolving there is the connection between the input and the output, which is obviously a physiological connection. Uh, and organisms change those connections with change in the circumstances uh, that they uh, that they hope to cope with, that they have to cope with. Um, I
2: attempt to elucidate both operant
0: and uh and uh, uh Uh, Pavlovian uh, conditioning uh, on the basis of this model. Uh, But in general, learning is a behavioral condition of
2: uh, behavioral
0: evolution of nervous connections that will increase your ability to cope with the environment. And then consciousness. I, I should uh, add here that my concept of consciousness is taken over from a, a book I wrote even earlier than the Cyber Next book called Consciousness. Uh, and it was an analysis of uh, conscious mental states uh, on the basis almost exclusively of uh, of information theory. Now, here's how consciousness of that sort works. And this is in rep- by way of replacement in place of the kind of um, neuronal connection between input and output that is uh, exhibited in lower species. Uh, when I was writing a cybernetics book, Uh, The experiments at MIT with frog receptors Mm -hmm. were very much uh, in in the air, very, very current. Uh, And the frog has a number of connectors, a number of uh, uh, neurophysiological connections between input and output, each of which is dedicated to a particular kind of pattern at the input. Uh, one example is um, what is called a net re- conflict, a, a net uh, convexity uh, pattern. When a certain uh, shape appears in the environment of the frog, that has, that we would describe as. Uh, the appearance of a fly uh, in in tongue shot range, uh, then the frog automatically uh, exhibits the kind of behavior that will hopefully result in capturing the fly. And that's a dedicated pathway. And there are maybe five or six different pathways of that sort that the Uh, authors describe, uh, each of which is dedicated. Now, it is a basic theorem of information theory. Uh, Actually, it's called Shannon's Tenth Theorem, Uh, according to which when you combine channels, make them interactive, more information can be conveyed. More information is conveyed by two channels together than the sum of what would be conveyed to those two channels separately.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You get greater information capacity by combining channels. And consciousness is a matter of combining channels in that way. And this occurs, and I will just run through this quickly, hoping it's uh, <clears throat> basically intelligible this occurs over a series of separate information channels. Uh, You can divide the processing that goes on between uh, the retina and the upper cortex, uh, divided into chunks of information processing, each of which feeds into the next. And at each stage, certain processes take place that simplify the patterns that are being developed uh, on the lower stage.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Various ways of removing redundancy, for example, of summarizing uh, so that at each stage the set of patterns, that are being processed are more and more simplified and more and more efficient until you get to the upper level that feeds into the cortex itself where you have a stable pattern that has been evolved to meet certain conditions. And the basic conditions that has to meet is that the pattern that emerges has to exist in a high degree, a high level of uh, <clears throat> um, uh overlap with the patterns in the environment to which the organism is, is responding. So what you have in, in effect is uh, a series of channels engaged in simplifying processes that result in patterns on the level of the cortex which feed into the organism's effector mechanism. Patterns that exist in high level of neutral uh, information with patterns exposed at the sensory periphery and that evolves in a way uh, that is covered by the feedback processes that we're talking about before mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, the net result is uh, an organism working with patterns that have been processed to provide the mutual the, the greatest amount of mutual information uh, relevant to the environmental circumstances uh, the organism has to cope with. Uh, So that's an information theory treatment of consciousness.
1: Mm And of course uh, all of these things you've described and their evolutionary uh, advances so to speak then of course they spread out through the development of social structures language reasoning and you continue in the book along through the the continuing sort of wave the uh, following along as these negentropic uh, advantages to negentropic flexibility continue to to accrue and grow but we'll have to leave it to readers to uh discover that uh when they read the book as (laughs) we're as we are uh running short of time we're already over time and you've been very very generous with your time before we get to our final question about sort of what's uh on your mind these days i did want to talk about one last thing which is because of course when you you wrote this back in the 70s and it is now something that does not seem nearly as fantastical as it might have when you first uh put it forward in the book Um, When you expound upon the notion that as an information structure, the human subject might be capable of immaterial existence. So, uh, if indeed what we have here is a kind of informational monism, um, that, yeah, this idea that the human subject does not necessarily have to be rendered uh, materially, which has been an implicit idea in cybernetics, even going back to Ashby to some degree. You can f- sort of read between the lines and find it. And now, of course, this I- idea of uploading consciousness, etc., is uh, is something that's actually seriously being talked about. Uh, and you were exploring it as a potential consequence of this informational monism back in the 70s. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about that uh, about that notion?
2: A couple of things.
0: At that point, uh, there was a particular movie that was very much uh, a matter of discussion. People were sort of excited about it. It was called The Fly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Have you heard of The Fly? Oh yes. Well, anyway, what?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> what the 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 plot of the movie is that. Uh, <laughs> What is unique and functional about a given individual is being converted into digital form uh, and is going to be transmitted someplace. And in the process of recording this information, a fly got in the way. And the fly got, got encoded as part of the uh, informational structures characteristic of the uh, individual person involved. So that when it was materialized at the other end of the system, uh, the fly became dominant and you had a fly man. Well, information in the process of being transmitted that way is immaterial. That this is what is being processed is in in immaterial form. and. If the characteristics of a given human individual that are essential to his or her identity can be digitalized in this way, they can be
2: present in immaterial form, in the form of
0: something like a Markov chain. You've got this system of mathematically describable states, which itself contains information. And if the information essential to a given human being can be encoded in the form of Markov chains, then you've got immaterial existence.
1: Do you think it's something that uh, we will achieve over the course of uh, this century? No. Hmm.
0: <laughs> How long will it
1: take us? Are we going to get there?
0: I'm not sure we want to get there.
1: Well, yeah, that's another question, isn't it? But obviously an important yeah. one. Well, yeah. thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Our traditional last question, uh, as with all the channels on the network, is: uh, What are you working on now? I know you're a professor emeritus of uh, philosophy at Notre Dame. Uh, are you still writing? Are you still researching any particular topics right now, or what is uh, what is on your mind these days?
0: What is on my mind these days is a large set of philosophic issues that I didn't have time to pay much attention to while I was working officially. Uh, Many, many questions. One of them, the nature of time, for example. Another, the nature of personal identity, for another example. Uh, which can be approached in ways other than uh, based on information theory, um, the nature of self-awareness uh, and numerous associated issues, mm-hmm. which it out all sort of interact, which is interesting in itself. So I guess you might say <clears throat> that what I have been doing since I retired, is approaching some of these same issues, particularly having to do with human identity uh, and uh, immaterial existence, from uh, aspects other than technical information theory. Mm,
1: great. Well, we wish you all the best with all of your your future endeavors. And again, it's it's been a great, great pleasure for me to to get a chance to talk to you. The the uh, reissue of this book was a real revelation to me. I think it's a magnificent kind of field unifying book in that it provides. A really robust account of the sort of fundamentals of cybernetics um, as you as you found them so to speak and then your contribution uh, again parsing the different types of feedback discussing negantropic flexibility and positing this informational monism i think are uh, really powerful things that add a great deal to the field and we're just so lucky that uh, rutledge was wise enough to uh, reissue the book and that we were lucky enough to be able to spend this time with you uh, in conversation so Dr. Kenneth Sayre, thank you again very, very much for your time and for joining us.
0: You're most welcome, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this. And as a final word, I I would like to uh, thank you for some very stimulating questions, but even more uh, for your manifest understanding of what I was saying, because it's not simple. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, (laughs) thank you.